Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 116, Passion. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we're back to look back at our recent episodes, looking at the folks that are working with Klal, either in the first pilot cohort of the Glean Incubator or otherwise. And before we jump into the conversation, we want to, as we always do in these look back episodes, we want to thank our listeners for all the support that you give us for the moral support, the wonderful emails that you send us, and uh, very significantly for your financial support, which really helps us keep this going. If you been listening to Judaism Unbound for a long time and are enjoying it, we really hope that you'll consider making a contribution. It's really easy to do. Actually, if you look down at your phone, if you're using the Apple Podcast app, there's a link right there that you can click on and it'll take you to the donate page on our website. And you could just donate from within the podcast app. But if you want to do it another way, you could just go to a computer, go to a phone and type in www.judaismunbound.com donate in your browser and you can make a donation using all kinds of means. We like to suggest a framework where maybe you could donate $1 per episode that you listen to. So if you're a regular weekly listener, you might consider a gift of $50 a year, or if you want to make it a Jewish number, 54, that's three times 18. We're grateful to our listeners who have been supporting us, and we're really grateful for our listeners who might consider supporting us. And there's other ways that you can support us as well. You can go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a five-star rating, and we would even appreciate it even more if you would give us a enthusiastic review. So with that, let's jump into our conversation, Lex. And I thought that one of the topics that came up a lot was this question of Chabad, whether and what we can learn from Chabad and its apparent, at least, success in engaging a lot of people in Jewish activities who might normally not be engaged. I wanted to start by noting one thing about Chabad that has really occurred to me, which is that Chabad sort of denies what a lot of the demographic studies purport to suggest, which is that Jews are not interested in participating in Jewish life. Now, if you dig deep into those demographic studies, they don't actually really suggest that. But what Chabad has always believed is that it's not that people don't want to participate in Judaism, it's that they don't want to participate in the Jewish organizations that they have available to them, and if we could provide something else, they would want to participate in it. Now, what's interesting to me is that I think that Chabad thinks that for some kind of theological reasons that, you know, I don't share, you know, that that every Jew has a certain spark or, or whatever it may be. But what's interesting is that Chabad's success indicates that what they believe is true, at least to a certain extent. And it is so true that people are willing to participate in a form of Judaism that is actually profoundly alien to their lifestyle, to their values, to their way of thinking about everything else in their life. And so when I look at the success of Chabad, 
you know, a lot of people look at the success of Chabad and they say, oh, that's some indication that this form of ultra-Orthodox Judaism is actually, you know, appealing to people and it's something that they want. And then they start puzzling over why is it that they want it? Well, maybe they're looking for authenticity. Maybe they're looking for the Thank warmth you. and the family and whatever they're looking for with Chabad, as opposed to saying, you know, actually, maybe they're looking for something really profound and important. And Chabad is like the only game in town that's providing it. If somebody was out there providing it in a way that accorded even more with these folks' values and, and aspirations and the way they live the rest of their life, maybe th that would even be more successful. I want to agree with what you just said, and I want to also really underline one little thing that you mentioned, which is the authenticity piece. So I do think that a huge reason why Chabad's succeeding is that they're just welcoming and they're in homes and it feels informal and it feels nice, um, especially for men often um, as the communities that that Chabad leads tend to disproportionately reach a lot of men, um, especially non-Orthodox men, um, because women that aren't Orthodox often often have struggles with the gender dynamics in Chabad. But, um, but they're certainly reaching a lot of people of all sorts of different genders. And um, the authenticity piece needs to be named also because there is still sort of, a, I think, a negative reason why people seek out a community like Chabad, which is that it feels sort of like real. And like that's that's the Judaism. Like they're not going to synagogue, but the synagogue that they're that they're not going to is like a traditional one. So when they when they do Judaism here or there, or maybe even a little more than here or there, they they want it to be the quote unquote real thing. And people will tell you this. Like people will say to your face, like like, you know, I I've been in in liberal kinds of institutions and, you know, when I, but when I do Judaism, I want it to be authentic. I want it to feel real. And, and it's a credit to Chabad that they've fashioned what they do as authentic, but it's also something I would challenge because I think that what Beloved is doing or what Macomb and Y is doing or what any of these communities are doing, even those that are not in homes and that are in, in more traditional kinds of building locations, like, they're also authentic. And so I want to I wanna learn what we can from, from Chabad's incredible successful model that, you know, isn't asking a ton of questions when you walk in the door, that is ready to, to have anybody who wants to shake their lulav on, on Sukkot. It's empowering the way that they really just want anybody who's Jewish by their definition to connect to Judaism. But I'm really, really glad that there are new organizations arising like these in Glean that channel some of its best teachings and at the same time try and transcend the the theological implications of of some of what it does. Yeah, and I would also note um, that just to remind ourselves and our listeners that there are there are all kinds of critiques of Chabad, including that their model it's fundamentally not an empowering one. So I thought it was really interesting when we spoke to Dan Horowitz a few months ago when we were looking at the Open Door Project. And he said that in the first year of his project, he very much was trying to model it on Chabad. And then he realized that there were two problems with that. One is that it was taking a toll on his wife and on his family uh, by having everything happening in their home. And number two, that it fundamentally disempowers people because it says that you should come to the things that are going on in the rabbi's home as opposed to, you know, what we talk about on this show, that that you 
should be empowered to go and do things in your own home. Now, back to what you were saying, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people that may have a longstanding relationship with Chabad in their youth and or in their you know young adulthood. And then along comes their daughter's bat mitzvah. And they realize that at Chabad, you can't have a girl come to the Torah and read from the Torah or say the blessings for the Torah, that girls are, and women are not given the same role in Jewish life and in the synagogue in Chabad. And these folks, they don't say like, oh, yeah, well, I guess girls and women shouldn't have those roles. You know, they say, whoa, this is not in accord with my values. And so often people kind of have a crisis at that point in their relationship with Chabad because they realize that like many things in life, right, that I, I might really find aspects of it really wonderful and I may really connect to certain aspects, but there comes a time when I realize that in a deep fundamental way, this doesn't accord with the major beliefs that animate my my life and the rest of my life, and I can't continue my relationship with this anymore. So having said all that, to the extent that there are ways in which Chabad is successful, and let's sort of take that as a given, you know, then then I think the real question is like, what are the aspects of Chabad that can be um, that can be learned from and brought into the liberal Jewish world w- w- with two issues, right? One is the issue that Dan Horowitz brought to us, which is that um, there are also ways in, in which Chabad's model is profoundly uh, unsuccessful and, let's say, undesirable for liberal Judaism, which is that it's fundamentally a disempowering model. And the other is that the Chabad model is economically very challenging, right? The, the reason why Chabad can work is basically because um, Chabad's rabbis are willing to take a much lower salary than most other kinds of rabbis. To some extent, that's because they uh, didn't invest as much in of money in their rabbinical education, so they don't have as many loans. You know, to some extent, it's because they uh, are a uh, they're a movement that believes very very powerfully in the idea that they should be out there bringing people into Judaism. It's a missionary kind of movement, and missionary kind of movements throughout history have. Uh, relied on the zeal of their missionaries and not had to pay them a lot of money. So, you know, it's an economic model that uh, is a lot harder to work, at least when it's professionalized. And then we can talk about that issue later, the professionalization issue. But to the extent that we're dealing with organizations run by professionals, it's a very hard model to bring into the uh, liberal Jewish world because liberal Jewish rabbis expect to earn higher salaries. So that's one of the challenges. I want to keep rolling with this because I want to actually applaud the piece that you named as like Chabad theology. So I'm thinking about a few things. We're we're talking about learning a lot from Chabad and also with the Lurias, we mentioned learning from evangelical Christian communities. And I'm naming those because for reasons that many of us are familiar with those those groups are similar to one another not in terms of the precise things that they think but in their orientation to religion and to the world which is that they each feel chabad and evangelical christianity that they sort of have a or the secret to to human living like they really believe deep down to their souls with passion and fervor that that they have a a form of connection to God or to the world or to holiness, they'd probably say God, um, and the evangelical Christians would say to Jesus, that everyone 
should have or that within Chabad that every Jew should have. And I think the fact that they firmly, deeply, passionately, ardently believe that what they have is good and worth spreading is a huge component of their success. And once again, the precise reason I don't I don't want people to think they're better than everybody else. I don't want people to think that Jewish Jewish chosenness means that we are superior in certain ways or that we have certain souls that others don't have, like things that Chabad thinks. But I do want, I absolutely deeply do want Jewish institutions and non-institutions to think Yo, what we are creating is amazing. It's so amazing that I want everybody who passes by on the street in Brooklyn or in anywhere to participate in it. Like, I want that. And and I do think that that is a huge basic reason why Chabad and, and also why evangelical Christian communities succeed and why they're so welcoming and why they – like. You have to be – the second you think that what you have is so good, you have to be welcoming, even if it's not your personality type, even if it's not – even if it's uncomfortable. Like if you have a basic desire in your life that that transcends all the others to make other people share some element of you, you have to become welcoming. And I think that part of why you walk into a liberal synagogue and you don't feel that is because – if you really pulled those people aside and said, "Does if people don't participate in this synagogue community or in this form of Jewish life, is the world like worse? I think a lot of them would say, I don't know, maybe not. Whatever it is, we need to find those pieces that we think like actually the world needs such that we are going to go and and communicate with everybody to try and bring them on board. Because Chabad has done that. And we might not like the particular reason why they do that, but they have that zeal that you mentioned and that is important. And evangelical Christians have that. There, there's a strength of fundamentalism is that it gets to the fundamentals. It get it gets to how people like at their core view the world. And and I would I would challenge us who are outside of fundamentalism to think what are our fundamentals. I'm hopeful, and I, and I heard it from the Lurias. They talk about love and belovedness. In the tone that a Chabadnik talks about mitzvahs or commandments or connected, like they have, they care as much about creating something holy and special in their way as Chabad does. So I am, I feel totally assured that that beloved is going to succeed in a certain way that re- that resembles those more fundamentalist communities because they have that. But we have to be looking for that. And it gets to that self-esteem. We, we have to think that what we have is great. Um, I'm reflecting back to Miriam Turlenchamp, who talked about how her congregation ultimately like didn't have any self-esteem and like didn't know why anybody would want to join. The first step for her was to identify that and do that internal work with the congregation to change that. I think we got to do that more broadly as well. Yeah, I mean, so to put a finger on what you're saying, it's that that the 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 challenge here is not a challenge of of means. It's not oh, can we learn some techniques from Chabad? It's fundamentally that the thing we have to learn from Chabad is that if we don't really believe in our product, then probably no techniques are going to work all that well. Um, and that's fascinating. I mean, I I think that you're right. Uh, um, you know, it's funny because it makes me think of our podcast, you know, like it turns out, right? Like I, I really love having Jewish conversations, you know? Um, and like, and I'm happy to evangelize for our podcast because like, but only to people who also like Jewish conversations, because if I talk about our podcast to somebody, they say, you know what? I really don't like listening to podcasts. I'm like, oh, okay. Like you shouldn't listen to it, you know, because like, it's not for you. Like it's not, and that's fine. Um, so, you know, another piece, so, so, so that also connects to the idea of, of, um, you know, kind of um, a modularization, right, of, of the idea that at least in the short term, right, 
Like if you're if you love mikvahs, you know, then then you would evangelize for the Maim Chaim or the Immerse NYC mikvahs, you know, like the that. But if somebody comes along and they say, you know, like I, I have a terrible fear of water, you'd be like, oh, well, then you should do something different, you know. And um and and so so you know, there, I think there's sort of two problems with with like large Jewish organizations trying to learn from Chabad, for example. One is that. In many cases, the people don't sort of love and believe in the product in, in quite that way. You know, it's funny, like every synagogue in America's website says they're a warm and welcoming community, you know, and, and it's like a joke because whenever you go to a synagogue conference and you talk about, oh, like, uh, who here is warm and welcoming? Like, everybody laughs, you know, because it's like everybody knows it's just like a thing that you say. And like, it's true. Like, people believe it. it they, they feel very warm and welcomed in their communities. So, so like I said, when we were talking to the Lurias, when I came into a megachurch, I've been more warmly welcomed than I ever have in, in my life. And it's because the people believe so strongly in what they were doing that they thought of their Sundays as they were there to be welcoming. And on Wednesdays is when they actually prayed, you know, and they were so committed that they that they did that. Whereas, you know, I think folks, and by the way, like a lot of uh, whenever you do sort of um, studies of, of synagogues, you know, you start asking even regular attenders of Shabbat, you, you ask them, you know, why are they here? There's that old joke, right, that, um, you know, Mr. Schwartz goes to talk to God and I go to talk to Mr. Schwartz, you know, but it turns out that 90% of the people are there to talk to Mr. Schwartz, you know, and, and, and those are the regular attenders. So, so they're what they're also enthusiastic about is is community. You know, is is their sense of community. But what they're asked to talk about to new people is Judaism, and they're actually not that, not all that enthusiastic about it. So, so I absolutely think that you're right to um, to, to to note that as 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 the critical uh, lesson. And and then you know, and then the question is. Um, Right. I, I mean, I, I guess, you know, actually, it, it probably all flows from there because, you know, when I brought up the question of um, that, you know, it's about the economic model because Chabad rabbis are willing to take a lower salary than other rabbis. Well, the truth is, is that um, that, that our most recent guests who are doing these Jewish startups, it, as it turns out, they're all reform rabbis. That wasn't our intent. But in retrospect, it turned out that that, that was the case of the, the Glean folks that we talked to, uh, Sarah Luria and Jeff Middleman and Miriam Cherlin-Champ and Debbie Bravo. And Debbie Bravo. Debbie Bravo. They're all reform rabbis. And, um, you know, I think that they're all have, as my guess, uh, have taken something of a salary hit to do the work that they do, as have we. You know, and so I and I and I think that we all feel really great about it because we're do, I mean, not super great, but we all feel pretty good about it because <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing this thing that we love. You know, by the way, www.judaismunfound.com slash donate. Um, but um, but the the you know, so so, you know, maybe a lot of those challenges of Chabad are really not actually such big challenges if we had a, a way of of helping people find and then do the things that they really powerfully believed in. So, so it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And you're, you're getting me thinking about another thread that interweaves with this, which is what we talked about also with the Lurias around professionalization. Um, you, you mentioned as a negative feature of the Chabad model is that it is so centralized in the Chabad couple, usually the, the Chabad rabbi and Rebetzin themselves, um, and sure, and lots of people come, but they're not necessarily made into leaders. And I think that links to what we talked about with the Lurries about how over the 20th century, we we saw all sorts of elements of our lives go from sort of community community focused and empowered and led by whichever people stepped up to 
you must get a master's degree in X or Y or Z thing in order to do that capably at all. And look, there's there's reason for that. And there are many fields where I I don't I wouldn't go to a doctor who doesn't have a medical degree. Like I, I get it. But at the same time, we've created a situation in Jewish life where we think that the only people capable of leading legitimate Jewish conversations or events are those who have rabbi before their name, maybe cantor, maybe have a, a, a degree in Jewish education. What they were talking about in terms of the 20th century is this major time of professionalizing across the board. I think it's worth thinking about whether we've gone a bit far with that in Jewish life. When I was a freshman and sophomore and I was choosing classes, I just looked for classes I was interested in. I was blessed to go to a school that didn't have distribution requirements. So I was able to sort of, as long as I finished my classes for major, I could choose whichever classes. And and I was happy with that. And I took classes I liked. By the time I was a junior, I started to realize that there was some, there was another step I should take on, which is that I should look for the people, especially in humanities, who were lecturers, as opposed to associate professors or full professors, like, like the people who were lecturers, which is theoretically less prestigious, they're the ones who are there to teach. The reason why they're on the faculty is because they have been understood as being skilled teachers. In any field, if you have somebody who is specializing in a particular element of life that you are looking to engage in, that's better than somebody who's just like, okay at a lot of things. We're training rabbis to be okay to, and I think to be good at a lot of things. I think if you went up to people and said, what's your rabbinic specialty? I think they would, they'd, they'd say something, but I think the question wouldn't have necessarily occurred to them. And, and the idea that they should have, you know, a particular part of rabbinic life, you know, leading Torah studies, uh, life cycle events, prayer service, like whatever, like the idea that they should have one of those that they're like extra great at, I, I don't think would have occurred to them. But I think if we had that, then we'd have such richer communities because you it might mean a sacrifice. And, and what Chabad doesn't tell you also, like, they are de- they are specialists also like they are deeply knowledgeable and deeply engaged on a very specific subgenre of Jewish text of Hasidut of of Hasidic texts of of the lineage stemming back to Schneir Zalman of Liadi who founded Chabad they are deeply knowledgeable about that particular set of things and a few other ones um, from the corpus of Jewish tradition that relate to that. It, if you were to have a conversation with them about other Jewish texts f- that are equally part of Jewish tradition, like they may have seen them once. They may like they, they wouldn't be any more of an expert than all sorts of other kinds of rabbis who might have engaged more deeply in those. They they're, they know that, that you should specialize specifically in a, a small set of things and know them well. And then, you know, you you've got them down pat. You know, it also reminds me of this story. Uh, I think I read it years ago, I think in The New Yorker, and it was a story about a a hospital kind of thing in Canada, which was devoted only to hernia repair. And the people who did the surgeries were not doctors. They were technicians who were highly trained 
only to do hernia repairs and they didn't know how to do any other kind of surgery or any other kind of medicine. They, they only had learned to do hernia repairs and their success rate was vastly higher than that of general surgeons, even who were hernia specialists, you know, because they all they did was hernias, you know, over and over and over again, and they were amazing at it. And, you know, if there was a problem, I think there was a doctor around, one doctor, you know, one surgeon maybe, a general surgeon, I don't know exactly how it ran, but there was one person around in case there was the rare situation that couldn't be handled by the technician, you know, and the reverse is usually what we have both in medicine and in Judaism, which is like, because we're concerned about this rare situation where somebody would need these super specialists, we insist that everybody has to be a super specialist, you know, and every rabbi has to be a generalist. Yeah. And, and we can analogize this a million. I mean, we, we know this deep in our souls because it, it embodies in every field. So like, I'm thinking of sports now because that's another thing I do. But like uh, Shohei Otani right now, he's a baseball player that is a rookie this year and he's stunning the world because he is so rare and that he is an exceptional hitter and an exceptional pitcher. It is it has never happened since Babe Ruth, who people might not know, he started his career as a pitcher, then he became the best hitter of all time. Um, there's There's been on one hand in in baseball history, going back a hundred plus years, you know, there's been that many people that are really major league caliber as both pitchers and hitters. It is just so challenging to be good at both of those things at a really high level. And the idea that just because you're a baseball player, you would be exceptional at both of those things is clearly not true. And we've crafted leagues around the fact that that's not true. And breaking that down even further, like first baseman and outfielders have drastically different skills. Sure, in Little League for the first bunch of years, they're doing the same general drills. They're learning the same general thing. They have a base. They have a baseline. Uh, base, huh? Baseball. Um, they have a baseline that is shared. But at a certain point, you you get to a level and you specialize. And as a first baseman, you work on footwork and and how you and you work on where to position yourself and you work on also and as an outfielder you're doing a lot of different things it's a, much more important to have mega speed as an outfielder who's running around catching balls than as a first baseman who for the most part is stationary but has to catch every single very very fast throw to them even the ones that are 4 feet off target like you've got to be amazing at at reacting and and different skills we understand this and we could go on and on in every single field yet as a rabbi you ask people to to think that way and it stuns them because they're used to this idea that no you need 6 or 5 years of school and you have to be amazing at all of it there's no reason to me that we shouldn't be asking the same of rabbis to have those those specializations. I think that's an interesting transition to Miriam Terlinchamp in a, in a certain way, because what Miriam Terlinchamp has done is so insane, um, but in a good way, right? We're going to sell our building and we're not going to buy another one. You know, we're, we're going to put half the money in a lockbox for seven years that we can't touch. And we're going to spend down the other half over that seven year period. You know, we're going to spend 10% of our synagogue's annual budget making videos. You know, all of this stuff that it's kind of like... On the one hand, you you kind of understand why other people don't do it, because it is so brave and it is so kind of risky that it, you can understand it's just a very rare thing for anybody to do. It's also one where if it doesn't go well, 
it doesn't seem likely that you're going to get the job at the big synagogue down the road. You know, if it does go well, of course, you're going to be like the greatest rabbi in America, which I hope that she she is, because I I would be very excited if she was the chief rabbi of America. But um, (laughs) not that there is one. But um, what I feel like I'm seeing in Temple Sholem of Cincinnati, which, you know, I have never been to. And so I apologize to any folks from Temple Shalom, if I am about to mischaracterize you, but I think it's kind of typical, right? You know, I mean, I think it's kind of typical of a small synagogue and that we have all over America. And what I feel like Miriam has shown or is showing with Temple Shalom and putting aside the social justice part, which I'm also a big fan of, but like, let's say that that part never happened. And the only thing that they did was what she did before that, which was to you know sell the building and make the videos and create this this different approach and, and, and everything that she's done. It seems like that is something that that many, many, many small synagogues could do all across America. Now, Miriam correctly notes that there's a large foundation in Cincinnati that that um makes grants to synagogues and that has enabled some of this um, stuff to happen more easily. But I, I think that, and, and she was right to sort of credit that foundation as, as making it easier for her to do that. And at the same time, I, I think that a synagogue in, you know, Omaha that might be looking at her model could easily say, yeah, we could do that too. What she recognized is this congregation needs to have an identity and it it needs to stand for and it's partially because that will help members join but also because like if not what are we doing like what's the point and and that and especially when you're in a location where she describes you know there's four synagogues on the same street or whatever within a mile or two, like I, I i grew up in a town where there were three synagogues all reform within 2 miles of each other and i got to tell you like you have to be on the boards of them, I think, to really know the different. Like, yes, there's different rabbis and different skill sets and whatever, and different staffing structures. But like, uh, you had to really be inside to say what the what the differences were or the emphases in one that were not there in the other. Like, what what she's done is she's created a congregation that has here is what we are. We are weird. We embrace the weird. We are a little bit oddball and we love that and we are proud of that and second thing we are all about social justice and we are going to be out there talking to our congress people and building relationships across interfaith lines and the, like that's an identity that's a real identity and they excel at those things if other i i really believe that if other synagogues identified whether it's those same things or other pieces that they're going to excel at and and they drive themselves with all of their passion into creating a, an institution that stands for those things then then we'll start to see something beautiful arise and if it happens you know across a city we'll be this we'll we'll see this beautiful tapestry of institutions that's not oh there's a bunch of synagogues and what distinguishes them is they're in different denominations like eventually i think it could be possible that we have a bunch of reform synagogues or a bunch of conservative synagogues and this is the one that's knocking it out of the park on torah study and has you know lines out the proverbial door a hundred people in micro communities and whatever doing incredible jewish learning on a regular basis here's the one that they don't do much torah study because they know that the other place is ki- is killing it and they want their congregants to, to go there for that and they're the ones that are that have the most astounding life cycle events and their be mitzvahs are incredible and they're the talk of the town and they're in the jewish newspaper when they happen 
I dream of that. And I think that it can happen when we start to identify real niches and specialties for our congregation. I guess it links to what I said before about rabbinic roles, like broadening it to institutional roles too. Yeah. And I just want to note the, the, the bravery and the willingness to take risks of both Miriam Turlinchamp and Debbie Bravo, who in many ways I think are doing very similar things, but in different direction, you know, coming from different directions, you know, that Miriam is, is rebooting a synagogue and, and Debbie is starting a new a new entity. Um, but in many ways, what they're they're both doing is saying, you know, we want to understand what it is that you need, our, our congregants, our potential congregants, and and we're going to, in, you know, in one way, we're going to free up capital by, uh, you know, stopping to do the, the, you know, the thing that we were doing, the building that was draining our capital, and we're going to free up our ability to do it that way. And in another case, we're going to, we're going to do that by starting up something new and, and only, having that be our, our focus. And um, what they're showing is that if you have that bravery and also the various skills, that it can, it can happen. And, you know, if this can happen in Long Island and this can happen in Cincinnati, why isn't this happening in every city in America? And it's because of a lack of, of human resources to do it. And, and I guess it, it does potentially circle back to our conversation about uh, rabbis and and sort of let's say uh, other types of Jewish leadership, you know the the doulas, nurse practitioners, you know uh, version is that maybe there are non rabbis who would want to do this for various reasons, you know who 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 have the passion or the talent and whatever, and and like I guess I hope that we will have a, a Jewish world that that would be excited about that, that would permit, you know, that would that where people would sit, would would be willing to say, hey, this non rabbi is starting a new synagogue adjacent type organization. That's cool. Uh, they don't need to be a rabbi, you know, um, and and maybe, you know, the rabbis will, will then follow. In a weird way, I feel like this conversation we've been having links to our links to our episode with Jeff Middleman from Sinai and Synapses. And I'm like, what we're talking about here on the self-esteem front and like not really believing that an institution is worth people coming to. I mean, we talked about that with Marion Turlin Champs synagogue. I think what she said is that it's a broader thing about Judaism writ large, and we're not sure why anybody would want to participate in Judaism. And I think that that connects to sort of our Sinai and Synapses conversation. I think that a large reason why people can't really get themselves to, to have passionate fervor about like this Judaism thing is so awesome and so worthwhile. And I am going to do everything in my power to bring more people into our communities. Like, I think a huge reason why people don't feel that way is because there is this nagging question of the science behind it. There's this sense that, well, wait, like the first text of the Jewish tradition is this creation story. And like the vast majority of American Jews don't think that it happened that that way. So can we really be trying to like happily, passionately evangelize people into I mean, evangelize, not in the literal, like just passionately invite people into Jewish spaces when we're not even sure if they like are quote unquote true. I, I thought that the idea of contact where it's not so it's not so much about whether the Judaism and the science are in line with each other or agree with each other. It's about let's find a topic, let's find a question of human experience that 
both Judaism and science are deeply interested in. And, and let's build a really fascinating conversation about what that means for us. Like that is an incredibly positive move. And where I think it comes from is this deep sense in Jeff Middleman, once again, that science is holy and beautiful and incredible. And Judaism is holy and beautiful and incredible. Full stop. Both of those things. I think he has to think both of those in order to create what he's doing. And sort of, I guess, like we're hammering home the same thing throughout this episode. We didn't come into it with this theme in mind. But I feel like having passion and having fervor and zeal, all these words that we're scared of because they can be taken to an extreme, having those around Judaism is crucial for us, even as non-orthodox, as unbound, as liberal, as whatever term Jews. We we can't be afraid of the passion because we know that other people's passion has been taken in ways that disturb us. We have to hold that passion and channel it into the forms of Jewish experience that we believe should exist in the world because they will make it a holier, better place. Ultimately, implicitly, it was never stated, but it's implicitly at the core of the work of all of these guests. They all firmly believe to the point that they would take a a smaller salary, to the point that they must do this work day in and day out, and to not do it would just like harm their their soul. You feel their passion, and and we need to find ways that all of us can replicate it in not necessarily on the same exact issues. For me, you know, it's I I think for whatever reason, like Shavuot is my huge passion, and I've and you know I've got this belief that this amazing holiday of staying up all night and schmoozing with friends and learning and eating cheesecake is like actually just amazing and worthwhile and. Like for me, the I I couldn't ever not observe Shavuot. Like I like I I have I have to. It's like so beautiful to me, and that's like a weird thing of mine. It's I don't I don't know why I feel that way. But if all of us identify what our weird or non weird passions are that we're ready to like sacrifice a lot for in order to create better Jewish futures, then I think that's a good thing. Yeah, and and it's funny, like the, what you're saying about Shavuot. It's funny. It's like I think about like I think like oh Shavuot, it's okay, you know. Um, yeah. And um, what's interesting though is that you put out an idea of about your passion of Shavuot that that people should have Shavuot all night all night study sessions in places like Waffle House and IHOP that are open 24 hours a day, and that it would be fun to like eat pancakes and waffles and study Jewish texts. And you put that out, I think, on Facebook and other ways. And like a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people have gotten in touch with you and said they really want to organize such a thing. And so there are going to be such Shavuot activities happening all across the country. And, you know, I'm probably not going to go to one you know, because and, and like that's OK, you know. But the thing about it is, is that I guess what I'm trying to say is like when you when you have a passion and, and zealotry about something, the way that it can avoid getting into that territory that we're afraid of is when you also acknowledge that it's fine if you don't share my zealotry, right? So I'm not going to go around to like try to twist the arm of every random person I meet. Uh, by the way, that Chabad does do that, you know, um, if you're Jewish. Um, and um, and um, 
by their standards. Yeah. By their standards, yeah, right. You know, I mean, they. I mean, I'm saying they always ask if you're Jewish. all the clauses. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, all the all the caveats or whatever. But they're, you know, if you say yes, I'm Jewish, or they they acknowledge that you're Jewish, then it doesn't matter what kind of a Jew you are, what kind of interest you are. They they believe that they're going to do everything that they can to try to like get you to do a, a, whatever thing that they're trying to get you to do. And and we don't like that. I mean, you and I don't like that. Like you know, other people might like that, but like we. But the problem, the, the 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 fear there, the issue there is saying like, no, it's not a, it's not enough that I have a passion for this, it has to also be that you have a, an openness to this, or you have a passion that's, that you didn't realize you could exercise in this way, or whatever it might be. And it's my job as the person with a passion to like find out if this is something that is the kind of thing that you might like. And if so, then I, I, I'm going to you know, be excited to tell you about my idea. But if not, I'm going to say, oh, that's cool. Let, you know, would you like me to try to connect you with something? You know, and that's why I, I think that when, when Jeff Middleman was talking about Sinai and synapses, you know, I happen to be a science person and I really like the idea of finding a Jewish organization that connects science and Judaism. That's That's cool to me. You know, I think there are a lot of people that just like aren't into science, and for them, Sinai and synapses probably isn't their th- going to be their thing. But that person might be really interested in, you know, musical theater. And I was thinking, like, I wish there was a Sinai and musical theater uh, organization. You know, um, Sinai and stages, right? Um, and um, Sinai and stages, Sinai and sports, Sinai and uh, sunshine for outdoors folks. Yeah, but, yeah all the stuff. <laughs> yeah, and and. Um, and, and, you know, maybe Jeff could start a, uh, you know, could have a whole uh, empire of Sinai and organizations, you know. So, Jeff, if you're listening to this, um, you could give us a little bit of a cut of that. Yeah, I, I remember when I was teaching more in religious schools and I was wandering around to different schools and I often didn't know the kids I was working with that, that well. And so I'd have to plan programs for, for kids I just didn't know. And I always, the first thing I would ask the teachers that do work with these kids on a week weekly basis, like, okay, what do they like? And that's so obvious to us, like that that would matter. And but but what's not always obvious is when the answer was Taylor Swift, I I found a way for Taylor Swift to be part of that class. Like it, it was a Sunday school class about whatever Jewish thing, and I, I'd go and geek out on some Taylor Swift songs because that's. Uh, like straightforwardly as an educator, if you're not able to speak the language, I mean, t- I don't know if Taylor Swift's the best example, but like if you're not able to s- to s- speak to, if Judaism's not able to speak to whatever the core elements of somebody's life are, that's not an indictment of the person. That's not like, oh, you need to be different and care about different things because Judaism has to be for you. That's an indictment of our ability to transmit Judaism. I ultimately do think the corny thing that Judaism can provide meaning to everyone, no matter what their wiring is and what their interests are. And and I think that that actually brings us to a point that Jeff Middleman made, and and I think a good last uh, piece to just talk about, which is the idea of Judaism as a language. Or and I think that deeply he's trying to struggle with this question, which which I'm getting asked more and more, you know, as, as I go around speaking and people sort of always ask, have this question, which is kind of, well, what makes it Jewish? You know, if you're talking about all this innovation and all this change, you know, what makes it Jewish? And Jeff gave us the, the idea of Judaism as a language, which I think is really interesting because we know how much language is absorbed from other languages. And very few people that I've heard 
are questioning whether English is English because there's a lot of words in it from French and German. And, um, you know, it, it just happened recently that a modern Hebrew translation of the Bible came out because Israelis can't read the Bible and biblical <laughs> Hebrew anymore because modern Hebrew has, for many reasons, including that modern Hebrew has imported so many words from other languages that concepts that are quite clear in the Bible, you know, that's not how you would say it in Hebrew anymore. And so is Hebrew today less Hebrew than then? You know, you could argue, but I mean, I don't hear a lot of people claiming that it's not Hebrew. And uh, I heard Erwin Cooler recently say this in a really extreme way, which is that basically every Jewish thing that you can think of, every ritual, every Jewish thing that you can think of came from somewhere else. I don't know if that's true every single 100%, but a very, very, very high percent came from somewhere else. So it feels like the most Jewish thing in the world is to take things that didn't start off in a Jewish context and integrate them into Judaism. That's what makes it Jewish. I don't know that I'm quite articulating it correctly yet, but it's like I'm struggling with the answer to this question because it almost seems like it's so clear that it doesn't even need an answer. Like if you if you understand sort of the history of Judaism, then it's it's really hard to even contend with this question of what makes it Jewish because that is exactly what Judaism has always done. I think that's a that's like a, a big question to end on and one that I'll be thinking about and that we're just gonna leave you with as listeners. So send us your thoughts on it. But yeah, I mean, I I just love that we've been able to take this moment to applaud the work that all of these recent guests from Glean have done and also just reflect on the role that passion plays in all of them. So with that, we are going to wrap up and we're going to do so in the same way that we always do with our episodes by calling out, imploring, begging, pleading, entreating you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit up Twitter at, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug that we like to make and especially make in these Dan and Lex episodes like Dan did at the top of the episode is that you can always support us. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring donation or a one-time gift. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.